Our thanks to Joan for leading our scripture. And where's John? There you are. Thank you for that beautiful song. I'll make reference to it in just a few minutes. Heavenly Father, we now pray for your spirit to descend upon our minds and hearts. Grant your understanding for our lives for today and this week. May you hide this preacher and may you reveal the Savior for us all. In Christ's name, amen. Sometimes we look at our world. We look at the erosion of morals in our country, the disrespect that seems to at times grow in different corners of our country toward morality in the church, and our minds, our hearts just want to cry out and say, God, are you doing anything about this? What are you doing, God? What are you doing? If you've ever asked a question like that, then you are a cousin of Habakkuk. You are his brother or sister. If you've ever been overwhelmed and frustrated and you've had it up to here and you wish that God would step in and do something, then you or I are a brother, a sister of Habakkuk. Now, who is this man? He lived in the 8th century. I'm going to ask that one picture I uh, propose that we look at Habakkuk. Does he look scary or what? <laughs> that is a James Tissot oil or uh, watercolor painting. It's in New York City. He's one of the great um, classical um, painters uh, presenting biblical scenes. And he actually has a uniform on. He is what we would call a Levite. He is a temple musician. Because the very last phrase of his short book, he talks about, he said, now you're to sing chapter 3. You are to sing my song on my stringed instruments. So he played a zither or auto harp, or he played a regular harp, or maybe some sort of a Palestinian guitar. We could take that down now. That's scary. <laughs> that is who Habakkuk is. A man sent by God who is furious and overwhelmed with all the evil. He lived in uh, the uh, 7th century and he may be an eyewitness. We don't know this, but one of the great kings of Israel was Josiah, a godly man. Not Israel, I mean the southern kingdom of Judah. And Josiah was that boy king where they found this scripture when they were cleaning up all the mess in the temple, all the garbage in the corners. They actually found the Torah, the Bible, and there was a revival that came. This was during the reign of the boy king Josiah who lived well into his adulthood. He took his army from Judah into war against Egypt. And I believe the Bible says that a, an arrow hit him and killed him. Josiah was the last righteous king of Judah. Following his death, it seemed like the whole country just deteriorated morally. 
as people looked here and there trying to find an anchor for their lives. And they gave in to a lot of uh, indecency, a lot of unkindness toward people who were uh, without, like the hungry, or the people who needed justice or mercy. It seemed like the morals of the whole country, the morals were caving in. And people, including Habakkuk, yelled out to God, God, are you watching? Look what's happening to your people. Are you doing anything about it? Now, he writes this very short little uh, prophecy, little book, only, I believe, 50-some verses. And uh, it's classic. Usually a prophet would have three, three points. First of all, talking to the people. People, you have, uh, you have violated the covenant of God. You need to repent. That's point number one in the sermon. Point number two is, oh, you're not repenting. Well, judgment is coming. And point number three, judgment is coming, but also there will be a time of restoration that will come from God because God wants to redeem his people. Now, that's the classic three-point message of all the prophets of the Old Testament. But Habakkuk does something a little different. Instead of a three-point sermon to the nation of Judah, he presents a dialogue with God. And that is what this book is. We, uh, as it were, we're sitting in the corner of his room, of his house, and we are able to listen in. And Habakkuk is saying, God why don't you do something about all the injustice in this country? It's your country, God. Why aren't you stepping in and doing something? And God answers, well, I am. I am doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonians. Now, how do you like that for an answer? It would be like what happened this week when the answer might be, well, I'm raising up the Russians. Well, we won't go there, okay? <laughs> Habakkuk's saying, why don't you do something? And God says, I am doing something. I'm raising up the Babylonians. And then he describes the horror when the Babylonian army will finally come and what will happen. It is so horrendous. God orders Habakkuk to actually write down in the text how vicious, how terrible it will be for the people of Judah. Habakkuk responds, what, how can this be? How can you give in to the Babylonians? They're worse people than we are. At least we have the Mosaic law. They have nothing. They want to come and destroy us. God's answer is, nevertheless, that's exactly what's going to happen. But those people who are righteous, they will escape. Those who have faith will be able to come through this dark period. And the fifth part of the dialogue, Habakkuk says, very well, very well. I will wait for the judgment of God to come and I will choose, yet I will choose to rejoice in the very character of God. 
Now, I appreciate the bulletin that was given to you. Did you notice there's a big space for you to write sermon notes? I want everyone to take out either a pen or pencil or crayon, okay? And I'm going to give you three simple words that are built on three wonderful memory verses from this book. This is a very small book, but it has several Bible verses that are worth memorizing. But not only that, it occurred to me that Habakkuk presents for us three steps for any believer to face serious stresses or problems in life. Think about that. What are you facing in your world? Perhaps there's something you haven't even shared with anyone else here in the church. Whatever calamity is around the corner for you, Habakkuk presents three steps. The first step is silence. That's the first word, silence. And the Bible verses, Habakkuk 2.20. The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. The second Bible verse is Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. So the second word is faith, faith. That means, uh, it's a verb, it means to trust, to believe. The third word is joy, joy. And Joan read our scripture from Habakkuk 3, verse, I think it's verse 17 and 19. So three words, quickly. What's the first word? Silence. Silence. Second word? Faith. Faith. And the third word? If you can grab hold of these three verbs, these three thoughts, and implant them in your mind and heart, they will help you to go through the world-changing calamities such as what the nation faced during the time of Habakkuk. When I was a kid growing up in northwest Indiana, every Sunday, without fail, We'd have a church in a more of a Gothic type of community building church, and the robed choir would come in after the organ prelude. This is like 100 years ago, okay? <laughs> and the robed choir would come in and sing, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Now, I used to think, what, you mean, do, we can't say anything now? How can we whisper? But you see, that's not what the Bible verse about, is about. It's not about buttoning your mouth. It's about buttoning the fears and the anxieties and all the noise that is within our hearts, within our minds. That's where it begins because, you know, sometimes we get so overwhelmed with problems. For example, we may have problems with family or, or with our work or problems with finances or problems with our health. And all these things converge in our mind and it's, it's just a blistering noise that just robs us of peace. 
And so the very first thing that is needed is silence. Because the Lord wants to minister to you and to me and to our whole country, indeed. All God's people. It begins with quietening your heart, your mind. Let me tell you an example of this. It comes from the uh, experiences of Abraham Lincoln, our 16th president. You know, shortly after his inauguration in 18, I think it was in 1860 or 61, he was inaugurated, uh, immediately the Civil War began. Immediately. The nation was torn in two. And this had not happened before where relatives would be shooting to kill one another. Now, it's one thing to have Fort Sumner as the beginning exchange of gunfire and cannon. That's 530-some miles from Washington, D.C. But the real first struggle was in Bull Run, about 25 miles from Washington. That's like you're getting in the car here and driving to Lincoln Park Zoo. That's 25 miles or 26 miles. That's how close Bull Run was to the White House and the U.S. Capitol. And hundreds of people died in that conflict in Bull Run. The Union lost. The Confederacy won that battle. Suddenly what was a cute idea of fighting in order to free slaves, now suddenly it was coming home to roost as relatives were losing their lives and people were becoming very alarmed. And most of all, Abraham Lincoln, the folk president who everybody liked with his humor, his uh, folk wisdom, he became more and more and more despondent and depressed and sad. He was six foot four, very tall fellow. And as he walked through Washington, people noticed he was walking and dragging his feet because he felt personally responsible for what was happening. And so it was in October of, of uh, 1862, um, I believe, 18 months after the war had started, a group of four people came on a Sunday morning to the door of the White House. They could do that back then. <laughs> they knocked on the door and they said, we'd like to see the president. We want to pray with him. It was Eliza Gurney and three members, all four of them, of the Quaker Church in Washington, D.C. And what happened that morning is not written much in the history books. It was a profound experience. Lincoln agreed to meet with the four of them, the four Quakers. They walked into the White House. And they actually walked into his private apartment. That's where they would meet him. And so imagine in your mind, they entered his living room of his private apartment. He sat down in a chair. Eliza, this woman of God, and three other Quakers sat there. And they did not say a word. 
Not a word. They sat and looked at him. And then after five minutes, six, seven minutes, they began to cry. And after 10 minutes, they were all weeping. After 15 minutes, Abraham Lincoln was weeping. Not a word was said. You see, they didn't come to criticize him. They didn't come to give him advice. They came to pray for him. They were silencing everything in their hearts. And in that silence, there was a profound worship experience for Abraham Lincoln. So profound, he writes about it in his journal. I want to uh, read briefly some of his comments. A genuine time of worship. It was an almost awful silence, he says. After they left, after about 30 minutes, they, they were given 30 minutes with the president, so they left after 30 minutes. Lincoln wrote this down. We are indeed going through a great trial, a fiery trial, in the very responsible position in which I happen to be placed, being a humble instrument in the hands of our Heavenly Father as I am, and as we all are, to work out his great purposes. I desire that my works and acts be according to his will. I have sought his aid, but if after endeavoring to do my best in the light he gives me, if I find my efforts fail, I must believe that for some purpose unknown to me, he is willing it otherwise. If I had my way, this war would not have commenced. If I had my way, this war would have ended by now. But it still continues. And we must believe that he permits it for some wise purpose of his own, mysterious and unknown to us. Yet we cannot believe but believe that he who made the world still governs it. This is what Lincoln wrote down after 30 minutes of silence. God spoke to him and empowered his resolve as he sought to free the slaves in the slave states. And that's for another sermon on another day. The first word is silence. The second word is faith. Faith. And it is taken from Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. Uh, some Bibles say the just shall live by faith. There are some Bible scholars that say that this short Bible verse of Habakkuk, I'm not exaggerating, there are some scholars that say that this is the most important verse of Scripture in the entire Bible. The righteous shall live by faith. It is so important, God gives us a commentary of what he meant when he had inspired Habakkuk to write that, because it is quoted three times in the New Testament. The righteous shall live by faith. Well, the one who was 
converted in that was Martin Luther. And uh, perhaps you know that not too long ago, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation took place. It was uh, 500 years ago that Martin Luther, a parish priest, who wanted a relationship with God, who was torn in his heart and soul because he did not have a sense of a, a friendship with God, he traveled by foot all the way to the city of Rome to do penance. And as he is climbing what is called the Lateran Staircase, 24 steps, where each step on your knees as a pilgrim with hundreds of other pilgrims are climbing these 24 steps, going through penance, going through the rituals, hoping to somehow prove to God that one is worthy enough and one is moral enough to be declared Christian. As he is halfway up the staircase, suddenly the book of Habakkuk comes to Martin Luther's mind and the verse, the righteous shall live by faith. He realized it's just about trusting God, believing in God, and having faith in the Lord Jesus. Martin Luther stood up. He was only halfway up the staircase. He stood up. He turned around. He walked down the staircase. He walked all the way back to Germany. And the Protestant Reformation began. The Apostle Paul talks about the righteous shall live by faith. In um, Romans 1.17, it is quoted as he describes who is righteous. Who is righteous? And then in the book of Galatians, chapter 3 and 5, it is quoted again as the Apostle Paul again now describes what it means to live because the scripture is the righteous shall live. What does it mean to truly live? And the answer is to be filled with the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And you're alivened. And then finally, Hebrews chapter 10. Right before the chapter on faith, the writer of Hebrews talks about what it means to live in faith. My friends, that's the second step. When we face difficulties and we would say, God, what are you doing about this to help me or to help our country? The first step is to be quiet to quiet our thoughts, our fears, our anxieties. The second one is simply to trust, to trust God and to know that the answer is found not in doing, but rather in being, in simply trusting God to carry you. The third step, the third takeaway point is joy is joy. It's joy not so much in rejoicing, but rather in the character in the person of God to take comfort and joy in the very person of God. Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 3.18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful in God my Savior. 
There's a, name, a lady named Kirsten Holmberg who's a journalist. She writes magazine articles. She's also Christian. She wondered about this. How do you find joy in life? She was uh, similarly to what I described. She was overwhelmed and feelings of uh, people surrounding her that would cause her to give in to pessimistic thinking and doom and negative ideas rather than living in a sense of positive faith. As she was studying the book of Habakkuk, her eyes lit upon a three-lettered word that makes all the difference in that whole sentence. That word is the word yet. Yet. I will rejoice in God my Savior. You see, it's not simply, I will rejoice. Indeed, we all come to um, meetings such as church and we do well in rejoicing and, and we do well in the pleasure of singing and sharing our music with one another. But what Habakkuk is saying is, yet... I will rejoice in God. It's not finding the joy as the answer, but it is finding the strength in the very character of God who does not change even when we go through great difficulty. Personally, or tremendous challenges as a country, I want to conclude by telling a story from the uh, writings of Kay Warren. And I need to give a spoiler alert here. Because this uh, story, true story, concerns mental illness. And I'm so grateful that at Faith Covenant Church, there's a ministry for those who are interested or who participate in this kind of Dilemma in life of mental illness. And Christians should show compassion and care. Kay Warren is the wife of Rick Warren, who is pastor of Saddleback Church in Southern California. He wrote The Purpose Driven Life. He is an amazing voice of evangelical faith in our country. About five years ago... Rick and Kay Warren were put in a spotlight when their 27-year-old son, Matthew, lost his life to mental illness. He had struggled for many years. Several years following his passing, Kay Warren finally felt led to open up and to share with her church and with others about her journey. And I want to conclude my message by telling this story. And I'm going to quote from her writings, her diary. She says, on July 18, 1985, I gave birth to my beloved gift of God, Matthew David Warren. Holding him in my arms that morning, I had no idea how dark the journey would get for him and for all 
who love him. All I knew is that on the day he was born, it was a bright morning. I was madly in love with this little child, and I could see nothing ahead but a mother's dream of a good life for her son. Now, preceding that birth in July, if you move back to Easter, which would have been in March or April 1985, Kay Warren was very ill. She was, of course, pregnant with this little child who would be born, but she also had a very serious diagnosis. She was home on Easter Sunday, the wife of the pastor of Salback Church, Rick Warren. She was unable to go to church that day, so Rick took the kids to church. And uh, Kate Warren says, well, I stayed home with my companion, which was my television remote, right? And uh, as I was lying in bed, sick, in uh, a lot of pain, and of course, uh, greatly pregnant with this little child, I grabbed my remote and it fell to the floor. And I don't know if it then toppled under the bed, but she could not get the remote in order to turn on the TV. And she was too sick to get up on her feet and to go walk over and turn on the TV. So here she is in bed with the remote is gone. And she uh, said, I could not even find a TV preacher to keep me company. I was full of anxiety and fear. So she grabbed her Bible off the side table, and it fell onto the bed. And as it fell onto the bed, it kind of fell open. And the scripture that was there was this. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food, and there are no sheep in the pens, and there are no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go up onto the heights. She read these words of Habakkuk, and she wondered, well, is there a nightmare that's going to come? What is this about, God? She read it again, and she chose that she would rejoice in the Lord, her Savior. This was God's word for her that day, to choose to rejoice. And so little Matthew was born. Everything seemed fine, but by his first birthday, the parents wondered there was just something that was not what they wanted or expected. By his second or third year, they noticed that Matthew wasn't quite like a brother and sister. And so he struggled all through his life. And his life finally ended 27 years later due to a serious illness. 
and Rick and Kay Warren grieved. The church reached out to them and loved them and cared for them. Shortly afterwards, Kay Warren was home and the mail came. And here was a letter from one of her best friends. A letter from uh, someone possibly who lived across the country who was a very close friend. She opened it up and it was a greeting card. And the greeting card had a scripture verse. Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, the olive crop fails, the fields produce no food, and there are no sheep in the pen or cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Kay Warren said, I've told no one this, but God is reaching out to me. And Kay Warren said, I am choosing I am choosing because of the character of God. I will rejoice. I will someday be reunited with my son, Matthew. And when I see him again, he will have a wonderful body. He will no longer have that condition that has so hurt him in life. He will be totally healed. Yet, because of God, yet I will rejoice. That is the word of the Lord for you and for me today. Silence, faith, and choosing to rejoice because God is always there. He will not fail us. Lord, thank you for strengthening us with this word. Deepen our faith and deepen our love toward one another, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you now as we sing together a song that will be led by John. It is well with my soul. Let's stand together. This is number 451 in the hymnal. Number four.
The name Habakkuk means embrace. God has embraced you. The difficulties that come into your life are not due to uh, a God above that wants to punish you. God is embracing you. He wants to bring his healing. And so trust him. Give him your heart. And know that he is embracing you through life. Amen. Amen. Friends, I want to uh, just invite you if, you know, Brian talked a lot about and Habakkuk talked about a lot of the struggles of life and the things that are going on. Um, if there is something that you are struggling with this morning, just there is a burden on your, in your heart uh, and you would like prayer, you know, I'm going to go with the deacons behind our choir risers here and just I would love to pray with you and for you and don't go through it alone because we are here together as a family. So I'm going to invite you to come back there um, and uh, after that, after we dismiss, we can have some fellowship, and then I think the grill starts up at 1230 over at the Lake Holiday, and so we will be uh, headed out that way. So receive the benediction this morning. May the love of the Father draw you ever closer to him. May the grace and peace of Jesus guide you on the journey. And may the power of the Holy Spirit send you to go be the church and make disciples. In his name, amen. Please turn and greet your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Amen.